Then we're going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Almighty God, whom to know is everlasting life, grant us perfectly to know thy Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that following his steps we may steadfastly walk in the way that leads to eternal life. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's a little bit of a different different kind of prayer, but I figured I'd change it up a little bit. So, um, chapter 7, the how of good works. Before we get into the questions, anybody want to just throw out some highlights, uh, questions about this chapter? Um, you might still have. This chapter if, contained one of the better theologies of suffering I've ever read. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, a good theology of suffering. Um, yeah, that's true. Which is funny because you know I found I found myself this morning in class talking a lot about suffering and not so much good works, and then I was like trying to reconcile. I was like, how you know um, the connection between the two is pretty interesting. Um, not that suffering in and of itself is a good work. Well, I mean, it's connected. You know, it can it can be a good work to suffer for the good of the gospel. You know, but it's always a tricky a, a tricky and somewhat sticky thing when talking about good works, especially within the context of American Christianity, because there's so much weight, uh, there's so much baggage attached to good works. I feel that it really needs to be cleared out. I think Pastor Wolf Miller did a pretty good job of that. Um, but did anybody else have any? I mean, there's going to be some pretty deep stuff we're going to get into in these questions, I guess. So we'll save the questions and concerns about the, th the major parts we'll get into. But do you have any highlights from the chapter, something that was interesting to you? Well, I looked at the uh, thing on page 149, the mm -hmm. four states of mankind. Yeah. Whatever. I, I well, had never heard, heard that one before. Yeah. And I... Chewed on that one a long time, and I finally came to the conclusion. I think the Lutherans are right. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> oh man, I love it. That's 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 good. That's good. That's hopefully why you're why you're here. Oh, that's great. Yeah, good. Well, this is something that's not easy to just think about within an hour or whatever. Like you, you could ponder this stuff for the rest of your life. It's pretty crazy. Um, the the implications tied to it the you know what's right and you know we, we we got into it this morning with with some of the folks saying like you know how do you keep from just the perplexity the the paradox of simultaneously justified and sinful and it's just like how do you live within that and it's it's not it's not easy but that's why you do it by faith Right? You trust in God and His grace and what He says in His Word about our nature and our wills and things like that, right? So yeah, we'll get into the four, um, uh, what is it, the four, four states. states of man's will. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that, um, which is kind of an interesting, interesting topic for sure. Um, any, other, any other highlights from this chapter real quick before we dive in? One thing that really jumped out at me was mm -hmm. 
on 163, mm -hmm. he says, our sanctification is simply getting better at suffering. And I thought that was very interesting. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. Our sanctification is simply getting better at suffering. Uh, that's, that's, oh yeah, that's right. Kind of towards the bottom of the page, third, mm -hmm. third to last paragraph. Yeah, that suffering is inherently part of the Christian life and how we deal with the suffering is, uh, yeah, a big part of sanctification for sure. Good point. Um, anything else? No? All right, well, how about let's just dive right in. Um, so we'll start at the beginning. Uh, I think uses... Page 142 is the first part, part there. American Christianity is confused about the how, what, and why of good works. So what is the proper view of these? So let's start with how. So what does he say about the how of good works according to American Christianity? Page 142 there. Regarding the how, American Christianity is confused about the ongoing battle of the flesh and the spirit. Right. So what is the proper view of the flesh and the spirit battling each other? What's the proper view? I mean, is the flesh something that can just be trained to be better? So, no. No. It is decidedly bad. Yeah. What 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 must what needs to take place against the flesh? Like what needs to happen to the flesh? Let me put it that way. It needs to be crucified. It needs to die. It needs to die. Um and, and that's something I've I was thinking about. I should have emphasized more in my sermon on Sunday that um, you know, you get into talks about um, getting into good habits, which are good and godly habits of reading your Bible and praying and things like that. Um, and I, I was kicking myself thing as I should have mentioned more about how, um, you know, every single day you wake up, you, you know, if you're going to engage in a good godly habit, remember that you need to drown the old Adam as the catechism says, right? That through daily contrition and repentance, the old man should be drowned and die with all of his sinful lusts and desires so that the new man may rise and live forever in eternal um, innocence, blessedness, and so on and so forth, right? So the thing is, though, is that it's a battle. The spirit and the flesh are always at odds, Um and we need to remember, and I think we, we sometimes, um, I think people sometimes get the wrong idea about the battle between the spirit and the flesh. Like the flesh somehow is just as strong as the spirit, right? Like some people think like it's just a stalemate that nobody actually gains ground. But the reality for the Christian is that the spirit reigns, right? The spirit has dominion and sovereignty over the flesh if you're a Christian, right? I mean, the flesh can kind of do a little backstabbing and get a few little jabs in here and there, but the spirit ultimately is the one that 
subdues the flesh, that crucifies the flesh and makes it just die so that the new man, Christ, can live within you. So there's a battle. There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Um, the spirit is more powerful, and we need to remember that. Um, I thought it was kind of funny, the, the, the whole thing about how the dog training... What did y'all think about that? The If you go over to your uncle's house and you see that, like, your cousins and your aunt, you know, they're all in the hospital because the dog attacked them and <laughs> the uncle is missing a finger. He's got gashes on his face, stitches in his leg. And you know that if he lives much longer with this dog, he'll die. And he's like, this is crazy. <laughs> that dog's going to kill you, right? He says, nonsense. I, I, I just got to work harder at training him. Right? Um, he holds up a book that says, you know, 40 days of dog training purpose and your best dog now and become a better dog. And, I mean, but really, like, that's, that's how it is with the flesh. I, I, I love that example. That's how it is with the flesh because um, you we're so busy trying to train and reform the sinful flesh, but uh, the old Adam can't be taught any tr tricks. He can't. He can't be, um, let me see, he can't be trained to be better. He is, he is nothing but bad, and therefore he needs to die. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's one of those things. It's like, I love, and I'm sure that some people would get upset with me for this. I don't know if they would or not, but we have a little dog, Greta. She's sweet as can be, and she loves Charlotte, our daughter. But if Greta were to ever bite Charlotte or, you know, um, endanger her in any way, I wouldn't necessarily think that uh, it would be a good thing to just try and say, oh, no, no, Greta, no, no, don't do that. You know, if she draws blood on Charlotte, if, you know, it's like, okay, uh, I don't know if this is necessarily a good dog to keep around, like, just get her away. If something worse happened, you know, it's like, you gotta put the dog down, right? That sort of thing. Thankfully, that's not the case. <laughs> you know, we're very Find thankful. Find a new home. Yeah, right. Find a new home if you can. But, I mean, if a, if a dog is going after people, like this dog, mm -hmm. you know, if the dog is going after people and is just maiming things and just won't stop doing anything but fighting and whatever, you just, you got to put that dog down. Um, it's not something you really want to mess with. We've had to do that before. Yeah, yeah. It's a very sad We've thing a, to do. a great game. Yeah. And it got meaner and meaner. And the vet said he thought Two psych no, <laughs> the said he thought the dog was psychotic. He said, you know, like uh, they're crazy people. Yeah. You have a crazy yeah, crazy dog. dogs. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well and and you know, that's that's a tough thing to to say you gotta put your dog down, right? Well it attacked Ed and ripped oh. up his arm. And so he got Stitches. Yeah, you don't want to mess with that. No, yeah. no. You yeah. know, if they could turn on you right. for no reason, then you a can't keep... piece of popcorn. I was over a piece of popcorn. I was over a piece of popcorn. <laughs> no, well, that explains it. That's perfectly <laughs> acceptable. Like, yeah, I threw the popcorn the same on thing. the floor yeah, for the really? dog. Oh, yeah. And then he saw it and thought, oh, man. what's this popcorn doing in the yeah. floor? <laughs> Reach down and pick it up and get attacked by the dog. Oh my goodness. Yeah, normal. well, that's one of those times like, yeah, I don't know if you three stitches. <laughs> 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 three stitches, like, 
So it's the same thing with our flesh, though, right? I mean, it's something you just don't want to mess around with saying that, oh, it, it's just, it's like, it's like a young lady who is dating this guy who just is no good and is not a Christian, but she is. And then she goes, oh, but, but I can fix him. It's like, yeah, chances right. are... Chances are probably not. You might want to just look not somewhere else. Going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's just like my best, best my, my my best counsel would just be um, run them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dad spoken right there. Yeah, yeah. Run them off. Yeah. So, yeah. So there, there, there's an ongoing battle between the flesh. The flesh cannot be uh, reformed. It needs to be put to death. Right. That's 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 the key. So that's the how for how we should properly view um, how good works, you know, are accomplished. So what about the what? What does he say about the what of good works? If we may, I, I don't want to tell another dog story, but okay. I think there's a good subtext in this passage. Yeah. Um, I've heard it taught by Christians as well as unbelievers that there are two dogs inside of you, a white one and a black one on the old... Which one are you going to feed? Question always comes uh, up. Yeah. So, Isn't that like the same old yin yang thing, though? Perhaps. I don't know. You know what I'm talking comes about? Out of the East, yeah. yeah. Where we have yeah. a dark and a light element that are in conflict. Yeah, or some of the cartoons where devils on one side and the angels on the other there side. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to please? <laughs> yeah. And that, that really distorts the picture of reality because oh, yeah. we are not three people with two inside us and one rational agent deciding which right. one to, to, to favor. Um, it's not that rosy <laughs> no we are either alive to christ or dead to god and um, so we're either under the domination of, of christ or of the flesh yeah so it's yeah not that we are just able to feed this thing and manage it in some way um, right and then and that 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 uh is that is exactly also playing into the understanding of the human will as we've been talking about in previous chapters right you have you have both good and bad, and which which dog are you gonna feed? And it's just like, well, that that right there is Satan trying to convince you that that you have enough good in you to decide yeah. which one is you, you know like you have enough good in you to decide what's good for you spiritually when that's not the case at all. That's not what Scripture says, right? Um, so um, yeah, that's a good that's that's a good point in that. Um, what is it that um, yeah, like Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? A little bit of sin ruins the whole batch, right? So that means that by faith we must uh, remember the promises granted to us through our baptism, through the crucifixion of Christ and His death and resurrection, and remember these things so that our flesh would be killed, drowned. And the new man would rise. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, there's so much to unpack there. But we'll 
we may touch on it here in a little bit with other things. But um, so about the what, when he says that there's confusion about uh, Christian vocation and the role of the Ten Commandments in the world and the Christian's life, I guess what's the proper way of viewing uh, Christian vocation, the Ten Commandments, uh, and the Christian's life? So let's start with vocation. What's what's the proper view of vocation? What is it? What is a vocation? Disneyland, the Bahamas. Nice. Yeah. Vacation. Yeah. No, a, vo- a vocation. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like that. What is? It's your job. Yeah. Well, I think I think that we've, um, yeah, in a very, what is it? In a worldly sense, it's, yeah, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. It's your occupation, maybe, you can say. Mm-hmm. Um, we would say, I think, your vocation is um, your your calling, mm-hmm. your duty in life. Uh, and you can have several different vocations at once. Um, mm-hmm. You can be a daughter, a son, a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, you know, a boss, an employee, um, a citizen, uh, first and foremost, you should be a Christian, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's a calling we have. So, yeah, so your vocation is, is um, something that the world would just see as kind of ho-hum, right? Um, and I think even Luther, apocryphally, I think it is, that he said that, you know, even because at his time, he, a lot of the monks and the nuns would, uh, you know, pray and hold masses and things like that and, and do the canonical hours and stuff, which is not necessarily bad when you see it as a good work. They saw it as a very holy high work that they would disdain marriage and children and changing diapers and things like that. And Luther was saying that that a mother changing her baby's diaper is... Uh, more blessed than all of the prayers said by thousands of monks, you know, because it is, it is a good work being done for their child. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, and I said, I think that's an apocryphal statement from Luther. I, I, at least I've been told that, but it stands right. That your vocation, um, where you are in life, your neighbor that's right in front of you needs your good works. Right. Um, and the Ten Commandments are a way, are a diagnostic tool, right, to show us where we fall short and what we could do better by God's grace in the Spirit, right, you know, by faith. So it's a pivotal thing. Like, it's probably more paramount, or it should be more paramount in our life of repentance than really American Christianity gives it credit for. Right. Uh, any thoughts on that? I don't think um, what the fellow, not the present, no, I'm having a bad day. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. If you think of it, just uh, let me know, okay? Um, Somebody's not going to change the baby's diaper. All the men say, 
I'm going to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, the, all the men get out of there when, when the babies have to get changed. Well, that's not me. I it's one of it's one of those things I do. I do change a lot of diapers, and I'll be changing more soon. Um, yeah. So. There's one thing that you can do mm-hmm. is tell younger, older, this is what we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you train them up in the way that they should go. Of you know, this is this is how you take care of. Uh, this is how you take care of babies. This is how you take care of each other. That sort of thing. That's right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, your vocation can even extend be to being a brother or a sister, right? Oh, that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So that's the what of uh, good works, and the why. When he says that American Christianity requires good works for the certainty of salvation and even to earn greater rewards in heaven, first of all. Um, is, is that a, you know, it's into some interesting stuff here. So is it right that American Christianity requires good works for the certainty of salvation? Not for salvation. For the certainty, though? You see what it means by that? The certainty of salvation? Whose good works? That's what I want to know. Oh, that's a good question. Right, because Christ's are necessary and ours are impossible. So. Right, yeah. So, yeah, whose good works? That's a good question. Whose good works are the you know, give us certainty of salvation? That's a good question. Um, but, I mean, I've heard it uh, from other Christians that, you know, uh, or at least I've heard the example. I've never really heard anybody use this, so I'm, I don't know if it's necessarily off base or not, but... Um, People would say, like, you know, you got to check your fruit. Has anybody heard that phrase before? Oh, yeah. Check your fruit. If you're bearing good fruit, then you know that's the certainty that, you know, you've been saved. That's kind of foreign to us as Lutherans, though, right? I mean, that's that's kind of a foreign thought. You don't earn anything. Right. Well, the thought thought behind it, uh, I'll try to be charitable here, is that I think the thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but... I think the thought is, is that, you know, those who have been saved by Christ, those who are part of the, uh, those who are part of the elect bear good fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. That's biblical, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're not bearing good fruit, then you're a bad tree, you know? And so it's like, there's, there's this outward sign business as well connected to good works, that the outward sign of our good works is a sign that we have actually been saved by grace through faith and things like that. Yeah. I feel like it probably stems from when Paul said, I can't remember exactly, but to make your salvation sure, or to Peter. make your yeah. uh, election sure. Mm-hmm. You're calling an election sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We had that, uh, that was on, is that Ash Wednesday? I think that was reading for Ash Wednesday, the epistle. Yeah. Where, you know, with, um, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with, you know, steadfastness and all these other things, right? To make your calling and election sure. And that's, and that's all good. Uh, but what it turns into is it turns into this, um, 
it turns into this outward declaration or this 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 outward manifestation of the salvation that has been granted to you in some way. Is that is that I mean Jake, you kind of nodding your head there. Is that is that kind of what it is that you've heard of before? Yeah. So yeah, I've been in a few places that taught along this line. Sure. One way, one way you can know you're a Christian is that there's been some radical change in your life since you came to faith or sure. whatever. And um, you should be able to look back and see that even if you're not perfect, you are progressing in some way. Yes. Like the Holy yeah. Spirit's power, of course, and all credit to God, but you should be able to tell that there's something right. improving in your life. And if there's not, then you should question your salvation. Ah, uh, Yeah. Um, yeah, my problem with that is that it makes us ultimately a law unto ourselves. Mm-hmm. It is true that if you're saved, you'll do good works in Christ's power. Mm-hmm. But it's not true that you can judge a good work. You, we need the law for that. We need Scripture to tell us what constitutes goodness. And that always points us to Christ. <laughs> There's only one goodness. Yeah. It's yeah. His. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, the... We become a law unto ourselves. When we are judging whether or not a good work is good, then yeah. then we're we're setting standards we ought not set. So it's 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 but that's that's also to be fair, it's also that also doesn't mean that we shouldn't run exactly in the opposite direction, saying that we should never think about overcoming certain sins, right? That we should never strive to um that we should never strive to struggle against certain addictions or sinful habits, right? What we should not do, as St. Paul also says, sin all the more so that grace may abound, right? Yeah, it's like, mega noito, may this, nev- may this never be, right? Yeah, so by no means we should do that. So we gotta, we gotta be careful on, you know, uh, making sure that we engage in good works, but not that we're so focused on them to the point where if we don't do as much as we think we should, then we should question our salvation. And uh, maybe not, I mean, it's all on that pride and despair pendulum, right? Not do so many or think so much of them in a certain way where we become prideful or not despair of ourselves so much that we despair of our own salvation, right? We got to be careful not to swing back and forth on that. Um, So... Yeah, the why, though, really does point back to, I mean, we talked about it at the beginning, suffering. The suffering of Christ and how he suffered for us and his good works, right? Like you said, Jake, there, that he did the good works for us. And now, you know, we walk in the way that he has walked, that he suffers with us as we uh, as, as we do in this life, right? Battling against the flesh, according to the spirit. So any, any, any thoughts on, on that first question there? I know we spent a lot of time on it. It was a big question. Any, any questions, comments on that? No? Well then let's jump into baptism. (laughs) All right. From one deep end to the another. Um, how is baptism the battleground of the Christian life? That's the second question there. I think that's on page 146 where he says that. It's yeah. the first shot. <clears throat> the first shot. 
How so? That's where it all starts. Yeah. It's where... Our flesh doesn't start waging war until we become a child of God. Right, yeah. Um, what Your... What is it? From what from what Pastor Wolfmuller said in this book, it seems like there are several different battlegrounds. Uh, there's the battleground of the conscience, and there's also the battleground of baptism, right? They kind of go hand in hand. And what does he say there? He says that the devil is always tempting us to doubt the gifts the Lord gives us in our baptism, right? He's uh, He doesn't really care about the people who aren't baptized, the people who don't believe in Christ, uh, they already belong to him in a certain way, right? Um, they've already been won over. He's not too concerned about them, but he is concerned about you because you are a child of God, right? He's concerned, um, and he is, like you said, he puts a target on your back. He, you know, it's the first shot. Um, so if the devil's always tempting us to doubt the gifts the Lord gives us in our baptism, what's the other side of that? What is what is God doing against him on the battleground? What does he say? Well, if Satan is attacking us, are we just left alone? Nope. Who's with us? The Lord. Yeah. He's always reminding us. Uh, he's reminding us, uh, calling us according to his spirit, right? According to the Holy Spirit, he's calling us back to the promises and gifts that he granted to us, bringing us back to the gifts of our baptism. That's that's why in the catechism, it encourages you that whenever you get up in the morning or whenever you lay down to go to sleep, when you pray, you, um, you know, it says, it says in, in our version, our updated version, it says um, something like, uh, make the sign of the cross, right? And say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But I think in the German, it originally says, bless yourself with the Holy Cross. That when you do that, you remember your baptism. If you look in our hymnal, whenever we begin with the invocation, in red, next time you sit there on Sunday, in red, it says, you know, the sign of the cross may be made by all who wish to remember their baptism." Right. That's why we do it uh, to have a physical acting out. That's kind of also a subduing of the flesh. Right. Uh, the flesh is doing the things according to the spirit, remembering what it is that has been placed on you, which is the sign of the cross. So and, and so, you know, do you have to make the sign of the cross? No, you don't. That's not a law. But the same thing is it's a good practice if you'd like to pick it up. You know, I, I would encourage people to think about it and. Consider the implications of it. Um, and that is a battleground, right? We have to remember our baptism. Through daily contrition and repentance, the old man would be drowned. That language is purposeful, drowned in the waters of holy baptism so that the new man would rise, right? Um, any thoughts on that? Any, did, did I miss anything in that, in that question, in that answer? What do y'all think about that? I don't want to be the only one talking. I got to preach tomorrow, so <laughs> I'm gonna save my voice. So y'all do some talking if you'd like. 
Well, I mean, the thing of battlegrounds, you know, there for a while, the uh, Equal Rights Amendment, you know, the draft females into the army or whatever, which I'm totally against. But basically, when I baptized, we baptized Amy, we put her in a battleground. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, all Christians, brothers and sisters of Christ, are fighting a spiritual battle. Yeah. Um, uh, but as it were, our big brother Christ is always is always on our side, um, laying laying the devil out where he should be. Right? If you want to think of it that way too, in a familial sense. You don't just send your Babies off to the slaughter, you know. Yeah, they're they are protected by that by that promise. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Better to be alive and struggling than dead and not. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you gotta. Well, it's funny because it's like you can't even. I wouldn't even say it's a fighting chance. Like it's. An eternally beneficial chance. I mean, it's 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 just the best the best possibility of anything to be alive, um, alive and struggling, like you said, eternally alive, and one day not struggling. Mm. Then, yeah, dead and one day nothing but gnashing your teeth and weeping against against God because you hate Him so much, right? The weeping and gnashing of teeth. <sighs> Lighthearted stuff tonight. I love it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So how about number three? This is where it gets kind of interesting, right? Um, and maybe maybe a little deep. And if you need some help with this, let me know. The four states of man's will discussed on pages 147 through 149 uh, is a compelling topic. First of all, did you think it was a compelling topic? Yeah. Did you understand? Did you understand it? That's a good point. Does it make sense? Because <laughs> that's, that's something I think that's a really tough one to get at if you don't quite understand it. Well, that was the first time I've been exposed to that concept. I don't know. I must have missed it all along or something. Me too. No, it, it's 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 not something that we. Uh, it's not. I would say it's probably not part of the basics course. <laughs> You know, it's, it's something that you dive deeper into. Like it's, it's, it's something that's touched on later on in our Lutheran confessions and the formula of Concord, um, to the formula of Concord was written to address disputes, right? Finer points about certain things of doctrine. So they had to get into this sort of thing, uh, to clarify, right? So it's, it's, it's nothing that is, uh. If it's something that you don't readily grasp, don't feel bad about that. It's, it's, it's something that you really need to ponder on for a long time. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's not, it's not part of the basics course. So if you didn't learn this in uh, catechism class or confirmation, don't feel bad, okay? It's not something I'd throw at a, a seventh grader. Because um, <laughs> then they'd be like, not able not to sin, not able to sin. Huh? You know, it's like, what does that mean, right? So... Um, did this clear anything up for y'all? I mean, was there anything? Do we need to clear anything up because this has been introduced to y'all now? No. I have 
Yeah. So, so it may be that I've been in Lutheran adjacent Reformed churches, which is true. Our church in Albuquerque had a confession and absolution in the service, oh, okay. even though we were Southern Baptists. So, you know. Interesting. So, so it may be that I've gotten a weird branch of Reformed theology that's Lutheran adjacent in some way on this matter. But, okay. But the box in 149 where our author claims that according to the Reformed tradition, a conversion, a converted person is able to sin or not to sin. Um, the, the version of that I've heard is that we we are able to sin or not to sin, but we're inevitably tending in one direction under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So that it's not a it's not a uh, an ambivalence. Mm-hmm. A, there's a direction to the struggle, and that's the progress of sanctification. Okay. Um, does that map onto the Lutheran view fairly straightforwardly, or is there some difference there that I'm missing? I think that there's probably a discrepancy in the terms. Yeah. I don't know if that, that really jives very well. So it's like, um, able to sin or not to sin. I think what that tends to do um, is it might cause confusion uh, because the way that the way that we see it as, you know, and, and of course he's, he has a blanket statement of reformed there, yeah. but there are certain stripes of reformed theology for sure. And that, that also depends on which confession you subscribe to Heidelberg or, or um, what is it? Even like what Westminster, the, Westminster that's right. So it, 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 it depends on your tradition that you subscribe to. They may have some nuances overall. I think they might kind of trend in similar directions, but uh, so let me see. So the way that you're characterizing the reformed view is that you would say that he's right in a sense that they would believe that you, after conversion, you're able to sin or not to sin. But you can still commit sins, yeah. Of course, yeah. You can, but are you able not to sin? Um, no. So that okay. would, that would be a, I think something very nearly a heresy because you would be teaching right. that some people in this life achieve perfection, which I think some like Wesleyans do. Yeah, yeah. it's a Methodist kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So maybe maybe he's being a little general here and. You know, because if you were to go further into it, he'd have a huge. He'd probably have a a, um, a chart that would fit like three or four pages. Yeah, um, that may be beyond what we're trying to get after. Right. Here. Yeah. That's so I think, I think the the terms that we would probably hold on to the most would be uh, really the biblical terms of the old man, the old Adam, uh, the flesh, and then the new man. Christ that um, and you know I'm not well versed enough in reformed theology to say whether or not they sync up uh, perfectly well I mean I'm sure that they kind of uh, complement each other in some ways but the Lutheran view would be that um, you know it's paradoxical the way that we live like he I think he says in there you know the Simul justus et peccator um, language. Have y'all heard that that phrase before? Simul justus et peccator. This is my first exposure. Okay. Greek. Well, it's really Latin, but yeah. Anyways. Um, <laughs> Latin is Greek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so yeah, um, when it comes to simul justisat peccator, I think, what does he say that? Um, 147. 147. Um, so when he says that, yeah, simultaneously justified and sinful, it's that, um, that in this life, because we still have our sinful flesh, uh, we are not able not to sin. That sounds kind of funny to put it that way, but I mean, it, 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 that's, that's why it's something you need to really think about, that the flesh is always tugging at you or pushing you in a direction where you don't want to go according to the new man. You know, there's always that struggle back and forth. It's like Paul says, um, right? It's the, it's like what Paul says uh, in Romans 7, like he says, right? That for, the, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, right? So this is just our way of uh, capturing that battle between the spirit and the flesh um, that is... I think probably more real or true to the experience of a Christian because no matter what we do, there's always going to be this taint of sin attached to it. Does that make sense? That um, if I go over to the needs council and, and I volunteer or if I go to a soup kitchen and I volunteer to feed the homeless or something like that, I am doing a good work, but somewhere inside of me there might be this desire for accolades. There might be a desire to get a pat on the back because I'm doing something so good, right? So, and that and that goes for a lot of things, and, and I can't, I can't even, like, I could exhaust myself going through all kinds of examples because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, right? That, that our heart, um, all, our flesh often has ulterior motives attached to what we do, even though it is a good, a good thing. So I think that's much more um, accurate to, or like I said, much more true to the human experience. That if we were to be honest with ourselves, none of our motives are 100% pure without sin, right? That doesn't mean that it can't be a good work done in faith, though, right? That doesn't mean that God didn't call us to go feed the poor or to um, clothe those who uh, need to be clothed or something like that, right? Um, so it's this, it's something that's not, that's really hard to nail down because it is paradoxical, right? How can you be simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time? I know I'm being redundant there, simultaneously and at the same time, but, you know, it, it kind of drives, drives the point home, right? How can we be simultaneously justified and sinful? How can we be that way? Um, it defies logic, right? It kind of defies reason on some level. But faith grasps this because that's how God describes us in his word, right? And faith must trump reason at a certain point, right? 
And I think that's why Lutherans often baffle and maybe annoy other Christians because we engage in paradox. We actually try and be very comfortable with paradox because the Bible talks in a paradoxical way when it comes to these sorts of things. It doesn't always make sense to us how we can simultaneously be free from sin, but also bound to it, you know, or how we can be free from the consequences of sin, but still face, I don't know, uh, still face um, the consequence of sin ultimately in our death. Does that make sense? So it's like, even though I'm free from sin, death, and the power of the devil, I'm still going to die someday if Christ doesn't return. Um, and that's a strange thing to think about, right? How can that be? And, I mean, theologians have been wrestling with this stuff for a long, long time. We're not going to, definitely not going to tackle it all right here and right now, but it's something for y'all to think about, something for you to ponder, because the more you ponder on the reality of the old man, the sinful flesh clinging to you day by day, the more you realize that you need that new man, Christ, to rise up to take hold of your life and kill the old man so that you would live with him forever. You'd live with the new man forever, right? So just do y'all have any questions about this? I'm gonna try. I'm trying not to get too weedy or confusing. Do y'all have any questions about this? Is this something to think about? <laughs> something to ponder, right? And also something to to suspend pondering at a certain point. I think <laughs> you're saying. <laughs> um, not that point taken. I mean, no, but, yeah. but I think that's, <laughs> that's messed up. We'll move on. That's Don't worry. <laughs> That idea yeah. of being comfortable with paradox, where scripture puts us in a position of facing a paradox. Yeah. I think that's a uniquely Lutheran thing, as you're saying. It's, it's appreciable. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, to be fair, any Trinitarian Christian is comfortable with paradox. There should be. Something, yeah. Right? Yeah. But it seems like we... Um, Seems like we tend to have one or two paradoxes that we can kind of decide to live with, and then the next one annoys us, and the one after that annoys us, and somewhere we just draw the line, and we're like, "Well, we have to reconcile this somehow." Right? Yeah. Right. And yeah. It seems that it seems rather arbitrary that if we're going to accept one paradox from Scripture, the Trinity, then we shouldn't probably accept the others yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> instead of choosing some. Yeah, and to be fair also, we shouldn't just say, oh, it's a paradox, no point in talking about it as well, right? right? You, there's, there's room for plumbing the depths of uh, these issues so that we can wrestle with them a little bit, but like you said, suspend it to the point where it's like, well... You know what? The more I think about this, the more my head spins. So I'm just going to give it a rest and think about it some other day. And that next day, I'm going to probably think about it in a completely different way because my experience has changed a little bit and I can see myself in the battle between the flesh and the spirit in a different light. So, yeah, I mean, something to think about. It's a good point. Um, so if that's the case, <laughs> we need to suspend the paradox for right now. How about let's let's look at the four parts of a Christian good work on page 154. So, um, what are the four parts of a Christian good work? Um, Y'all say it. I've spoken enough for right now. <laughs> what are the four parts? 
done in faith in God, mm -hmm. in obedience to the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. for the glory of God, and for the benefit of our neighbor. Right. Okay, so why does this matter? Next to the neighbor. <laughs> yeah, you got your neighbor next to you, yeah. Um, well, you treat your neighbor the way you'd want them to treat you. Mm-hmm. Do unto you others you. as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Yes. Um, do these all need to happen in the same order? No. No. I would think, what, they kind of happen simultaneously, right? That, um, but number one is number one for a reason, right? Done in faith. Um, this is a logical, not an ordinal primacy. There you go. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you, you would say that... Um, Without faith, the other ones kind of, they don't really mean anything. Or it's really kind of funny. It's like, if you're not doing it in faith, then what is it going to benefit you to be in obedience to the Ten Commandments, especially if you can't fulfill them perfectly? And for the glory of God, even though you don't have faith, it doesn't make sense, right? So, yeah, they all, they all take place together, really, at the same time, simultaneously. Um... So, any other thoughts on those, on those four? I just wrote down, good work does all of them. Yeah, right. Yeah, a good work uh, engages in all of those things, for sure. Um, I think it's really cool that four is included in this particular list, because, I mean, obviously there are the, the radical monastic traditions and stuff, where you could just go off in a desert somewhere and be uh -huh. super holy. Uh -huh. But there are variations on that theme where you might think, oh, I've done such a good thing today, <laughs> looking once again at yourself, mm. because I've prayed, or I've said my Hail Marys, or I've well, done whatever yeah. religious observation or thing <laughs> it is. You know? Well, it's funny, because it's like, if you say, oh, well, I prayed today, what did you pray for? Right. Did I benefit my neighbor? Yes. Yeah, did that, did yeah. you pray for the good of your neighbor? Right? Uh, did, did you pray for them? Um, it's one of those things, it's like... Um, did you pray that you might be a blessing to somebody else? Or did you, you know, if you're going to pray for yourself, what is it so that you would be able to serve someone else because of the love of Christ or something like that? I mean, that's, that's something to consider, right? Um, but yeah, the, the monastic traditions of battling the flesh and um, speaking or talking back against Satan with the word of God for your own benefit, that sort of thing. Um, which is why, which is why Lutherans, um, I know that there is a quote-unquote Lutheran monastery somewhere in Michigan or something like that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Oxford, Michigan? St. Augustine House in Oxford, Michigan. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Later. I think I've heard about them. Um, I don't think they're affiliated with the Missouri Synod. Uh, nope. I'm I'm wonder like I wonder about that. I've always wondered about that. I think that Luther talks about that somewhat. I mean, he's yeah, he was kind of anti-monastery. Yeah, he's a bit jaded uh, yeah. Yeah. from his experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that um, I don't think that it's a bad thing to have uh, orders or groups of men and women. You know, men together, women together, to pray together, to encourage each other in reading scripture, and and to encourage charitable works and pray and all these good things in done in faith. 
I think where the stretch comes is forcing vows of celibacy and things like that. Um, I think, I think we've tended to shy away from monastic life because then you get engaged in that kind of mindset where, well, I'm shutting myself off from the outside world Mm -hmm. and what kind of help am I being to my neighbor? Otherwise, um, you know, so it's one of those things where it's like, can you engage in this? Maybe in a, maybe on a retreat level, right? Yeah. You can retreat away yeah. for a certain time and then come back out into the world. Our oldest son does that, and this is where he goes. Oh, yeah? He has a very stressful job. He mm-hmm. lost his wife when she oh, was no. young. You know, just he had many children. Wow. And so he just had so many stressors in life. And he found out about this place. Mm-hmm. He likes to go there and read their books and pray yeah. with them and, and come back and do his job. And, yeah. And... Well, sometimes sometimes for the sake of retreat and respite, you need mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the bad part comes in where it's like you say you have to do that for your entire life. Right. Um, and you're running away from the world. Right. It's bad. Right. But if it's a week... Yeah, two, come weeks, back two weeks, yeah. And 40 days in the wilderness fasting. And like, yeah, right. Lord, you know, yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Come back then. Giving yourself a rest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you exile yourself in a monastery for life, you're actually ending up being a burden to your neighbor because you're not working for your food. You're not working for your clothes. Other people have to provide for you. Well, depends they, on the monastery. That's right, yeah. It does de- <laughs> I think it does depend Some on the monastery. You could grow your own yeah. cotton. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. used to make the old monks. They used to what, make beer and wine and sell it. Or yeah, they would, they would yeah. or they'd have an apiary and have mm-hmm. bees and honey and things like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, they would sell these things for their own, so that they could buy their own food and whatever. They'd be a part of the economy in some way. But yeah, yeah. the point is, is that um, I think, yeah, there, there are some things that we would shy away from the monastic life, but uh, for a certain time of retreat and respite, I don't necessarily think it's on the whole a bad thing. You just got to be careful, mm-hmm. um, especially how you view what you're doing in the monastery. Yeah. Right. The intentions and the motivations. And I think they spend a lot of time alone in their room and he reads Lutheran books and the Bible and yeah. stuff. And then, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like what, um, what he touches on here with Luther saying that the, the, where does he say that? I think it's towards the end. Um, where is it? Oratio meditatio tentatio. Have y'all heard that before? Um, I think we've talked about that. And <laughs> took Latin. Yeah. And now he doesn't remember it. Though. That's okay. That's no, okay. Yeah. Spanish. Spanish. Yeah. So. Um, it's different. No. Well, yeah. I mean, it's something. It's something that we should all contemplate on. Is that that? Uh, and and something we 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 did a book study when we first got here called Grace Upon Grace. Uh, written by um, Dr. John Kleinig, and he um, fleshed out more of Luther's thought on oratio, meditatio, tentatio. He said those are the three things that make a theologian. And oratio would be uh, the reading of Holy Scripture, right? Um, and he, and I, I would stress the reading out loud of, 
uh, Holy Scripture. Meditatio is meditating on that word, so repeating it over and over and over to the point where you're letting the word dwell within you richly. It's that it's like that prayer for the word, the collect for the word that we would read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word of God, like a cow chewing its cud kind of thing. It's always in our mouths. And then the tentatio. Um, so let me see here. If you want to write it down, oratio, meditatio, uh, tentatio. He used another, he used a German word for that, for, for tentatio, affectum, right? Affliction, struggle, uh, temptation in the sense of uh, affliction and struggle bring, right? So what the thought of that is, and if, if you went to a monastery like um, St. Augustine's, right, uh, I would hope that that would be kind of the cycle you would go through, that you would read Holy Scripture, meditate on that. And because you're doing these things, um, because you're doing these things, the, Satan will attack you. Affliction will come. Temptation will come to not do these things and all sorts of stuff, right? And so this tentatio ought to drive you back to the Word of God. And you just kind of go through a cycle of this, in a sense, right? Does that, does that kind of make sense? So, like, if you were going to go off on a retreat, I would encourage something like this. Or I would encourage, like, kind of seeing that as a general structure and outline for, like, your devotional life, as it were, Right? Um, because then you, you engage in God's word by faith, knowing that it is, you know, it is the thing that gives you life. And then you meditate on that, which is a lot of things that we, with Sons of Solomon, try to do. Meditate on a proverb every day um, and, and um, let that be a part of your life and help you guide your actions and your thoughts and things like that. Because you know that tentatio is coming and you need to be prepared so that you know that you can go back to God's word. So it's, it's just, if you haven't thought about that before, just, just chew on that for a little bit. Um, see what you think. Uh, what was tentatio? Tentatio is like affliction. Okay. Uh, yeah, affliction, struggle, temptation. Um, anfektung, as the Germans would say. So, yeah. Um, how do we get on that? Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> you mentioned St. Augustine's. Oh, that's right. Oh, you didn't know this. Yeah, so you go, yeah, so the benefit of your neighbor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the benefit of your neighbor is, you know, part of the good works, um, the four parts of the good works of a Christian, right? Um, but I do like that he makes that distinction there, that um, we have free will in the outward things of human society, right? Um, that the atheist can give his life in service to his nation. The heathen can love his children. You know, um, it doesn't take faith in God to be faithful to your spouse, that sort of thing. Um, but apart from faith in Christ, all these virtuous acts are so stained with sin that they are not acceptable in God's sight. They are tainted by, uh, they are tainted by, um, 
They're tainted by our unbelief, blemished by our failure to keep the first and fundamental commandment, you shall have no other gods. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? With, the, with faith, something great happens, though. Our puny attempts right, at good works are taken up by God and made glorious. Right? He's the one who sanctifies them. Um, it's kind of like that... that um, I think, I think I used it in a sermon one time about, about good works. It was the, par- the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard, right? That um, it, was, it was like a little boy who goes out and chops wood with his dad. And just because at the end of the day, the boy's stack of chopped wood was not as much as his dad's, it doesn't mean that it was useless. It gets added to the pile. It's useful. But the dad doesn't love his son because of how much wood he chops. He loves him because he's his son, Right? I mean, kids... Your kid, dad, maybe. Yeah, right? <laughs> Normal. That's great, yeah. That's great, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, though. It's like, you know, kids, kids in and of themselves are inherently, on a utilitarian level, they're useless. You know, I mean, really. I mean, like, I can, I can go throw away my own trash, but it's like one of those things, like, Charlotte's actually nice enough. I can give her like a wrapper and she'd like go throw that away and she'll run and throw it away. I don't need her to do that. And I don't love her because she can, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. Um, my parents think that we're like really sneaky. It was like, she likes to move like the laundry from the washer to the dryer. She likes it. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? But we don't love her because she does that. We'd love her if she didn't do it. But um, we appreciate it and, and you know, um, it's one of those things that it's, yeah, it stems from our love for our daughter. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with how well she does it. Yeah. So that's something to think about when it comes to our, our good works done in faith. Um, and so when he says though, that all good works are completely impossible without faith, is that true or false? True. Well, when you when to be acceptable by God. Yeah. It, yeah, but to be acceptable by man. No. Yeah. Good but who works cares? Serve, <laughs> yeah, but they may serve a purpose. You're right. Feeding right. the poor and sure. the soup kitchen. But ultimately, um, if my good works are smiled upon by man, but not by God. Who cares? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just gonna say it very very bluntly, right? Right. If I if I donated you know thousands or millions or billions of dollars to end world hunger, but it wasn't done in faith. Who cares? Ultimately, you know, I know I know that you know a lot of billionaires have done a lot of philanthropic stuff, but I mean I can't say if it was done in faith or not. That's not my job to say, but I will say that like if they didn't do it in faith then it's pretty meaningless, honest. I mean, not pretty. It is meaningless. It's impossible to do the good works in God's eyes apart from faith, right? Apart from Christ, you can do, what, a little bit? No. Apart from him, you can do nothing, right? If you're not part of the vine, then you're dead, yeah? And that's a hard thing that people of the world don't understand, uh, it takes faith to grasp onto that, right? It takes faith. Faith in Christ. Um, any other thoughts on that? 
You want to push back on that a little bit? No, I'll put true also. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. I don't want to scare anybody from kind of having a little back and forth, you know, so. Well, I said that without faith, your good works are eventually just self-serving because either mm. you're doing it because you believe in karma or quid pro quo or you're yeah. being a good person so you don't get punished or mm. for your ego. It, it's always self-serving mm-hmm. yeah. without Look faith. Like, Look how nice she is. She's yeah. Nice. You want, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, yeah. So, um, that kind of brings us to the next part, I think. The, the dangers to our conscience, page 158 and following. Um, here's that conscience talk again, right? Uh, the con, the, the three dangers being, uh, a calloused conscience, an evil conscience, and a counterfeit conscience. I think that what you're talking about, Amy, is that that's kind of a counterfeit conscience, right? That the counterfeit conscience is one that thinks that it becomes good apart from the forgiveness of sins. That in, in, in the end, apart from faith, whatever works that would have been good ultimately are self-serving and you think that you can avoid punishment or earn favor or what, you know gain karma, which is actually kind of interesting how... All the different religions in the world, except for Christianity, have a legalistic component. Christianity is the only one that does not have a legalistic component for salvation. It's almost like it's the true one or something. It's kind of crazy. (laughs) Anyways, um, (laughs) right? Because every other religion, you have to do something in order to merit salvation or... uh, um, confirm salvation in some way or whatever um, that's a tie, tied to. But with Christianity, you know, biblical Christianity, historical Christianity, that's not the case. Salvation is a gift, freely given, right? So of the three dangers to our conscience, a calloused one, an evil one, or a counterfeit conscience, which ones, if you'd like to chime in, which which one do you battle the most? You don't have to say why, you just say which one, if you'd like. Who struggles with a calloused conscience? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, scar tissue, right? It's this you lose the sensation of guilt. Um, you cease to feel the pain of sin. That saying one little lie, let's just use that one, saying one little lie and another little lie and another lie and another lie and another lie, eventually you just stop caring about whether or not it's a lie or the truth. Um, same thing with gossip. Same thing with other things like, um, you know, maybe... Excess of drinking, eating, smoking, uh, excess, or yeah, just like lustful thoughts, actions, speech, stuff like that, right? Calloused conscience is one where uh, your sins become habitual and eventually look like addictions, right? Uh, So... 
at some point I would imagine everybody's kind of struggled with one of these three. But how about how about an evil conscience? Who's who's struggled with an evil conscience? One that accuses where it shouldn't. Anybody ever had a problem with an conscience that was evil? Grew up in a pretty guilty place, you know, just folks always looking at you and judging you and pretty soon you just kind of imbibe that. You become your own worst nightmare. You're always focusing on yourself, which is dangerous under any condition, but especially when your main goal is to find out why you're bad today. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Even this piet, well, it's the old pietism, right, where you're just prefixed on finding some new sin to confess so that you can feel a little better about yourself. Right. Yeah, yeah. The your conscience will jump right in with that. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah, play go along with that game. <laughs> yeah. That, um, yeah, the, it's, it's like, it's tricky. I think the evil conscience is really, really tricky because it's like, um, you're right that that sin that you committed was really bad. In fact, going on unforgiven, it could separate you from God forever, right? Um, but at the same time, it gets to the point where um, the evil conscience is weighed down with guilt and shame and distorted with uncertainty and fear. That if you only look at that sin and you don't have the, the other part of it, which is God's grace... I mean, you just wind up being nothing but uh, convicted, nothing but um, uh, accused, right? Um, and so it's, it's needing the gospel um, to forgive us, right? And to give us a good conscience, one that no longer accuses us um, over and above what it should, right? Uh, now that now that we have God's grace, that's the key. Um, and it's like it reminds me of y'all have probably heard this before, and I know we're going a little late, but but we're almost done here. I think this is kind of worth getting into though, because I think it's I actually hate that this quote from Luther has been taken by people and turned into something that it shouldn't should never have been. Who hasn't who has heard the term sin boldly? You ever heard that term before? Sin boldly? Yeah. Yes, no? Oh, good. Okay, we got a kind of a mixture here. That like people, I think some people have said like, just because I'm Lutheran, people have said, oh, I love Luther's quote, sin boldly. I was like, I don't think it means what you think it means, you know? Um, and maybe they mean well by it, but it's just like the context of the sin boldly quote was um, Philip Melanchthon, you know, the author of the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Aug you know, he was a fellow reformer with Luther. He had he had a conscience that kept convicting him and would never never hold on to the grace of God. Right? He was always afflicted because he knew in his mind he was a very smart guy, but I think he was too smart for his own good in some ways. Right? And Satan played on that to where he was despairing of God's grace. That he thought that he was so bad, there's no way that God could love him, right? And there's no, 
There's nothing that he could have done that would have been seen as a good work because it was tainted with sin, right? He struggled with the paradox of simultaneously justified and sinful. And so Luther wrote to him, and we have his letter to this day, where he says, sin boldly because that's all you can do. And that God will, God will bless the good works that you have done in faith, even though they may not have done perfectly, they may not have been done perfectly by you, God still can bless them, right? Like I said, I can go feed the homeless, and even though I might have in my heart this desire that I would get patted on the back for it, which is a sinful desire, right? I'm not doing it selflessly, you know, completely selflessly. But even so, people are still getting fed. And I'm doing it because the new man is saying that this is a good thing to do, right? So I kind of have to throw that in there. Sorry to dance around the paradox again. But yeah, sin boldly doesn't mean do whatever you want, basically. It just means go and do the good things God has called you to do in faith, right? That's what it means. Um, so then, yeah, a counterfeit conscience on the other side uh, is one that thinks it becomes good apart from the forgiveness of sins, an attempt to quiet the conscience through the law. It's, it's kind of like what he said about the, the troubled versus a terrified conscience. A troubled conscience is one who is counterfeit. It just says, okay, I've done something wrong. What can I do about it? Right? Um, and, I mean, who hasn't had that thought in their minds Oh, I need to make this right. That's a good desire, right? That's a fruit of repentance on some level. But if you're doing it because you think that that one act of making it right of restitution, of recompense, is going to make everything okay, that's where the problem comes in, right? Um, that we forget sometimes that we stand before the face of God clothed, not in the rags of our own... Uh, so like... When we stand in front of God with our own works, they're just filthy rags. Uh, but in the robes of Christ's righteousness, we are sanctified. Right? Um, uh, I like that. He says, any other means from works of service to psychotherapy? I'm glad he got that jab in there. Only gives us the... Uh, the um, <clears throat> they only give us the illusion of peace, right? The forgiveness of sins is the only way the Lord restores a right conscience. <clears throat> so all this talk of good works, and then we get back to suffering, okay? How does suffering fit into the Christian life? For our last question before we end here. How does suffering fit? Well, we're told to pick up our cross yeah. and follow. Mm-hmm. All in a cross around is not exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's not my idea of a good time, right? Not exactly a pleasure. Yeah. So, so, and and I think that's that that that's where he talks about um, oratio, meditatio, tentatio. There on page one sixty four. Um, the three things that make a, a theologian prayer, which yeah, that's true actually. Um, Oratio is prayer, uh, but it's prayer from God's word, right? It's reading God's word and praying like the Psalms 
or praying based on the Proverbs or, you know, something like that. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and Psalm 119 is great for that. Um, in American Christianity, though, is suffering seen as a good thing? <laughs> I hear laughter. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it seen as something that's desirable? I think some people think they're being punished on earth. Must have done something really bad, so God's punishing me mm -hmm. for it. Where it, that, <clears throat> that is so untrue. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like the blind man in John, um, when in John's gospel, when Jesus heals him, or his disciples ask, who sinned first, this man or his parents? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that he did any, anything, it wasn't specifically a sin he's being punished for, but it's just the general affliction that comes from sin, mm -hmm. the sin that we were born with, right? Um, but suffering in and of itself, yeah, some people might think they're being punished. Uh, what did he say? He said, and it, it boggles my mind how people can think this way, but I've, I've seen it. I don't think I've experienced it. Maybe I have, and I just don't remember. But when you think about um, suffering in the American Christian context, it's not seen as something good. In fact, if so something bad is happening to you in your life, what's, what's the typical response from like, I, he's low-hanging fruit, but I'll just say it. Someone like Joel Osteen. What's the typical response? Well, you did something wrong, or you're doing something wrong. You, you did something wrong, wrong, you're doing something wrong, or Repent. you don't have enough faith. Oh. That's what I'm looking for. I've heard that before. It's like your faith wasn't strong enough. Mm. And so God is trying to strengthen your faith, or some, you know, something like that. That actually would be probably a better way to go about it. God is trying to... Uh, chasing you to discipline you so that you would trust more in him, but they don't really see it like that. It's still something you did wrong. You're being punished for it, right? Um, but it's funny because, I mean, we should rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, and some people have even said, I think uh, it was more of an ancient thought that the more we suffer, the more, the closer we are to God. Um not that suffering in and of itself is what sanctifies us, but that when we suffer, we know that we do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our suffering. As we hear from Hebrews, we heard this last Sunday, right? That we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who suffers with us, who has suffered for us. And now through that suffering, we are delivered to eternal life. So suffering fits into the Christian life that we should expect it. We shouldn't avoid it. Um, and we shouldn't go seeking it out necessarily, right? I think that that was a problem in the early church with martyrdom. That martyrdom was seen as such a high and lofty thing. And, and if you were a martyr, I mean, that was such a great witness to your faith that you stood in the face of you stood in the face of tentatio of tentatios. You know, you're threatened with losing your life. And yet, by faith, you stand strong and you endure, right? Like Stephen, mm -hmm. right? And so, but the thing is that they had to kind of actually tell people, 
don't go seeking this out, right? Don't just go into the marketplace and say that Caesar's a dirty pig or something like that. You know, it's like, don't just go out insulting the Roman authorities because you want to be a martyr for the faith, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to find you if it's going to find you, right? Suffering will come. Um, but sometimes we also have to remember, and I told the story this morning, and I say, I tell the story periodically, and I think it's a great story. I forget. It was when the Spanish, uh, when Spain was conquered by the, the Moors, um, I think it was... Um, Five or six hundred. Yes. It was, well, it was, it was actually, I think, like a thousand, right? Some, it was sometime in the thousands up to like the 1400s when they finally drove them out of Spain. When the Christians drove the Muslims out. Yeah, so so it's one of those things where um, when Spain was ruled by Muslims, they had blasphemy laws, right? If you spoke against the prophet Muhammad, penalty is death. Right? Still is. Still is. So at the time, though, there were still Christians in Spain. Right? They just wouldn't be able to attain the highest office. They wouldn't be able to climb the social ladder. Right? They were seen as second-class citizens. Right? So um, one, at one point in time, you know, um, I forget exactly when this was, and I need to look it up because it's, 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 it's a great story. But um, at, one, at one point in time, uh, I think it might have been like in the 1200s probably, that... Uh, there were these there were these parents these christian parents were concerned because their children were being seduced by the muslim faith they were considering converting to to be muslims uh, because they saw it as appealing it was it was to be part of high society you had to be muslim it was very enticing so what the parents did was they would, in, they would talk to their kids and they said, they said, don't forsake the faith. Don't, don't, don't be condemned to everlasting death because you follow a false prophet and a false faith. And the kids didn't listen, right? They were rebellious youth and they thought, we, we know what's best, right? We're just going to do what we got to do. So what the parents did, and I forget how many there were, but there was a number of them that, that actually began, I don't know if they published things or if they went out and said things in public that said, Muhammad is a false prophet and Jesus Christ is the one true God, right? Mm -hmm. And they were allowed to hold these opinions. They were allowed to hold these beliefs privately on some level. They weren't allowed to speak them out in public and it was kind of overlooked, right? But when they started speaking them in public, the authorities came to them and said, you need to stop saying these things. And they said, no, we're not going to stop. They kept saying it and kept saying it and kept confessing Christ as the one true God, right? And it came down to where they finally said, look, if you don't stop saying these things, you will face the penalty of death. And they didn't recant. They wound up dying for their faith. All so that their children would see that that's what you want to convert to. You want to join the people who would kill your parents, right? 
And it was one of those things where they sought, they didn't necessarily seek martyrdom out. The suffering didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily something they chose, but for the sake of their children and their situation, they had to make the good confession so that their children would hopefully stay in the faith, right? That's a tough decision to make, mm-hmm. right? It takes wisdom and discernment to make that decision. Um, but I, I, think it, I think it'd be hard-pressed to say, you know, they sought martyrdom for the sake of martyrdom. They were trying to make a good confession for the sake of their children. And that's a vocation, right, that they had as parents. They had to make that good confession for their kids. And ultimately, I think that probably met <laughs> the four... Uh, I think that probably met the four uh, parts of a good work, right? Done in faith in God, in obedience to the Ten Commandments, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of their neighbor, which was their children, right? And because of that, suffering found them. So, Hmm. something to keep in mind, because I think nowadays our culture doesn't like suffering. We flee from it. We avoid it. It's nothing that needs to be, you know, we, we need to be scared of, though. We expect it. And actually, as Christians, we rejoice in it um, because we know that Jesus suffered for us, and that's really all the comfort we need. Okay? Any, any closing thoughts, comments, or questions? We went a little over. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. <sighs> Surprised. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions? It's a pretty good chapter. Um, full of lots of good stuff that hopefully y'all will revisit uh, at some point in time. Um, a lot of things to ponder. Well, if there are no questions or thoughts or concerns, probably not because we've gone long enough. <laughs> we probably won't really stop talking. So how about let's just close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.